Hello, uh, and uh, and welcome to oh good and welcome. Yes, welcome everyone to the first live recording of the Frizzy Sherbet podcast here at the Bush Theatre. Um, it's fantastic to have you all here. Um, I don't know how many listeners we have in or new audience, but for anyone that doesn't know, I'm one of the co-hosts of the Fizzy Sherbet podcast. This is, and I'm Josephine. Hello. This is Tamara. Hello. I'm a co-founder of the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, and it's amazing to be here with an actual audience and also to just all be in the same room because we've been doing everything over Zoom until now. So this is a really, really good moment for us. Mm -hmm. um, before we start, we were thinking we would ask everyone on the panel to introduce themselves and to also just talk a little bit about a favorite childhood sweet because we are called Fizzy Sherbet. <laughs> and when you go out into the break, you will also each be given a little Fizzy Sherbet so you can enjoy that. Um, I'm just gonna start. Um, so my name is Tamara van Werten. Um, I am a woman with dark hair, uh, pronouns she, her. I'm wearing a blue dress and yellow tights um, for the for the lemon theme <laughs> and um, my favorite sweet is something that I used to eat on holidays in Denmark and it's um, really strange it's a vanilla ice cream which is dipped in licorice powder and it sounds disgusting <laughs> but it's <laughs> lovely <laughs> Hey, hello. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Josephine, or Joe, and I am a woman, she, her, and I'm wearing various animal prints. Um, I've got a tiger kind of dress on and some sort of leopardy shirt, um, hair in a ponytail. Um, and uh, so sweets, uh, we've done this on the podcast before, and I say aniseed balls because I think it sounds interesting, but also I think I, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I kind of have a, a, when I was young, I just associated them with sophistication, I think <laughs> and uh, just the the color and the vibe so yeah how about and this is our lovely Sophie yeah so hi I'm Sophie I use she her pronouns I am a very light-skinned black woman I have natural afro hair I am wearing a blue dress and neon yellow kind of greeny socks um and I guess my favourite sweet, I didn't get the childhood bit of the memo, I just asked to think about my favourite sweet. <laughs> so my favourite sweet now is something I discovered recently, which is the cinnamon flavoured jelly beans. And they come in two strengths. And I found that I'm the only one who likes like the strong cinnamon. Um, maybe I think it makes me sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a theme of aniseedy, sophisticated flavours. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> pass to Athena. Hi, I'm Athena. My pronouns are she, her. I am in all black, <laughs> which will make that easy. Um, a black jumpsuit with a v-neck and short hair. My favorite sweet going out was something called Nerds, <laughs> which I am American, so you might not know what that is. It's basically sugar-coated sugar. <laughs> um, and it's basically the size of, like, sand you're growing you old. 
So it's the most difficult thing to eat or be fat. Um, but it's fitting because I grew up to be a great big nerd. <laughs> Hiya, um, my name's Lizzie. I'm a woman, I use she, her. Um, I'm wearing a sort of sort of flowy shirt that's black with white polka dots on it. I didn't I didn't do the lemon theme, sorry guys. Um <laughs> My favourite sweet growing up, I think it was probably Jelly Babies, um, just because they're classic. But I did also have a little bit of a moral crisis about biting the heads off first, because I thought I was sort of quite savage, but um, still Jelly Babies, yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Anna, I'm pronoun she, her. I'm wearing um, all of the fizzy sherbet colours today. I've got a purple top and yellow trousers and... Um, uh, yeah, I even got a yellow raincoat that I had to put on today because it was just so rainy, as we all know. And um, I, my childhood, it's not, is, is it, we allowed to do chocolate things? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool, because everyone's doing sweets, like, um, all right. Um, because I think it would be like, um, maybe not even just a crunchy bit, like the honeycomb covered in chocolate that I just used to, just make, takes me back to going shopping with my mom because she would buy it in the big bags and I just like sucking them until the honeycomb all went and yeah and then you get the chocolate over the top oh yeah I want some now (laughs) (laughs) that all sounds delicious um I just want to give you a quick structure of the evening so you know what will be happening so we will kick off with um the amazing play the diagnosis by Athena Stevens um and then we will have a chat with Athena and then we'll have a break and then we'll have another chat with um, Sophie, our special guest. We will keep the chats quite fluid. So we will also ask Sophie questions in Athena's chat and the other way around. But this is just so you know um, what the structure is. Yeah, and we'll also be calling at points uh, for audience questions if if there are any. So if anything strikes you as interesting or cool or troubling or whatever, um, keep that to yourself until we ask you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and just before we start with the fantastic play, The Cassandra Effect, I thought we would just introduce Athena, who is the writer. So Athena Stevens is a writer, performer, director and social activist, and she's also the artistic director of Aegis Productions and currently on attachment at the Finborough Theatre, creative council member and associate artist at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Um, and so Athena's work also, as well as theatre, which you do tons of, obviously, also includes uh, the feature documentary Day of Small Things for Channel 4 and the short film The Conference for the BBC and three web series on YouTube. And she's currently launching the self-advocacy platform Make Your Own Damn Tea <laughs> and an accompanying <laughs> book. Uh, and Athena is also a contributor to HuffPost, The Stage, The Guardian, The Independent and The Mighty and was a found, well, is a founding member of the Women's Equality Party. Mm-hmm. So there we go, that's Athena. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I would like to introduce Sophie Williams. Um, she's the author of Millennial Black and Anti-Racist Ally. She's also a TED speaker, founder of Official Millennial Black, which is an Instagram account which I would um, say you should check out if you haven't already and racial e- equity consultants in her day job she's a global manager of production planning at netflix she's a regular panelist speaker consultant and workshop facilitator with a focus on anti-racism and diversity and inclusion her writing has appeared in publications such as the guardian bustle glamour cosmopolitan 
Marie Claire, Refinery29, Elle and Grazia. Fantastic, okay. <laughs> Great, well I think then we will kick off with the play. Checking in again. I am so bored. I'm seriously considering going into this off license with a pair of tights over my head. Does that sound like a good idea, over? So is it okay if I just don't um, face you head on? It's something about the light and I, um, I really don't want to be distracted in what I'm saying, so I think I'm just gonna turn slightly to the side like this. Is that okay? Yeah, can we, can we go on? Thanks, thank you, just a bit. Overwhelming, I guess. <laughs> I mean, actually, there's no I guess about it. It is all overwhelming. And there's a fox behind Charing Cross Station. Oh, two foxes. Two fucking foxes in the middle of Zone 1 London. That's where society is now. Right, uh, yes, I'm here to report a rape. It started about six months ago. I was waiting for my carer in bed. Uh, she comes in at seven o'clock on the dot every morning, telling the cat food, hitting the bowl. This morning I've been awake ages just thinking, you know, listening to podcasts, whatever. Vida came in and dragged the rings across the metal curtain rod chatting about South London, how the area's changing for good, she said. This, um, this relates to the rape, I promise. When my eyes adjusted to the harshness of the daylight, I saw this sign, I guess you call it... Uh, I don't know, um, words written above her head. Emphysema, 17th of December, 2045, oxygen dependent. And I was like, you know, am I dreaming? What the fuck is this? Why can't she see it? Did she give me the wrong pills this morning? But it followed Vida, floating directly above her head as she bent down to adjust my legs and the foot plates on my chair. And we went to the mirror and... There was nothing written above me, but backwards in her reflection, there it was. How fitting that it would come down to these two lone fighters. They know the field. You can see their expertise as they start scoping out options. Samson comes up to the first bin, waiting, looking, not worth the effort. Delilah walks past. She's been here before. I reached out to touch the words, but um. There was nothing to touch, the whole thing just dissipated, only to come back together as soon as I put my hand down. I know what emphysema is and there was a date, but... I went over to my desk at eight o'clock and put the earbuds in, which, you know, government issued. I am lucky. I was able to get a job working in security, you know, after there was a big push a few years back when everyone started working from home. You don't even have to leave your bed. They said on the billboards. Billboards. Yeah, that was going to hit your target audience. But, um, <laughs> but I saw it. It's good work. You know, all I have to do is uh, face a bank of screens. No, I, I'm not crazy. Just, um, just listen. Yeah? I fly drones through the tunnels of London's underground looking for uh, structural abnormalities. 
weaknesses. After the floods started happening on the system, I... Delilah now rounding the corner over to Pret. Might seem like the obvious move, but is a bold one definitely going to tip Samson off? Is she really wise to lay out her plan like this? Sorry, could you just um, slow that screen a bit? It's, it's too bright and it, it hurts to look at you. All of you together, I mean... I mean, is there a reason that there are so many of you here to take my statement? What? So, take my time? I have. Not anymore. See, when you spend hours in front of screens looking for cracks in the underground, you don't have a lot of company for weeks. It can just be Vida and me knocking about in our flat together. Occasionally, there is a lone workman on one of the monitors, uh, suited up with a head torch against the black mouth of the tunnel, surprised by the light and the sound of my gnat-like machines flying through their otherwise solitary territory. Everyone is familiar. Um, they're my guys. They know what I am, even if they don't know who I am. I'm, I'm there to protect them. Sometimes they put up an arm when they see me, a sort of salute into the unknown blackness and a glass lens. I take it as, as a thank you for looking out for us, for seeing us. Three hours after I saw it on Vida, I noticed a glowing white strip above a workman's head caught in the grainy black and white feed, a, a sort of halo. Indecipherable no matter what angle I flew the drone at. Most of the workers had one, but some didn't. A few days later, I, I had to get out of the house. I was um, more worried about the workers that didn't have anything above their heads than those that did. I mean, there was nothing above my head either. What does that mean? Maybe I should have read my guys better. Maybe then I would have known they'd do something like this. At the checkout in Tesco's, there was a boy and his mum packing up their shopping. They, um, the boy had one of those little balance bikes, you know, the, the wooden ones without the pedal where, um, where kids are getting an idea of what a real bike would mean. And he was like four, maybe. And above him, I saw the words, bike accident, T4 spinal cord injury. The date was... 12 years from that day, just floating above his head. A T4 spinal cord injury doesn't kill you. Neither does oxygen dependency. I, I wasn't seeing the end of people's lives. I was seeing something else. I left Vida at the till to punch in my pin as I drove my chair to catch up with him to, to tell the mum not to let her son learn to ride a bike, but... Of course, she thought I was crazy. I mean, I would have. <laughs> a woman yelling at you, driving a motorised wheelchair, talking about why your four-year-old shouldn't learn to ride a bike is insane. And right now, you're probably thinking the same. But just bear with it. The mum grabbed her boy, picked up the bike, and got away as fast as she could. Vida spent the entire walk home inhaling three cigarettes in quick succession. I asked her to stop. She said nothing. When I asked her to stop smoking on her breaks, that's when she gave in her four weeks' notice. 
It's amazing what you can't unsee when you realise that someone's headed towards a cliff. And, and the logical thing would just be to, to look away. You walk away, say, not my problem. But when they don't know where they're headed, never mind. Samson, slowing down. He's noticed. He's definitely noticed. I know that look. That is a fox that wants to get in on something at the ground level. He's just waiting for the opportunity. Oh, seriously, guys, I am so bored out here. I get I lost the bet, but Villiers Street, come on. It's the dullest place in London at 3am. At least if I was in Canary Wharf, there might be an Ocean's Eleven going down. The weeks went on. The drones flew through the halos hovering above the workers' heads underground. I still couldn't read them. In real life, above ground, I would be waiting in line at the post office and the person in front of me would have the words inner ear damage, explosion, or untreated macular degeneration just travelling above them wherever they went. A birth trauma above one of a trio of teenagers giggling on the corner of Westfields, even though it looked like none of them had even started their periods yet. Outside a pub, I saw a man climbing a ladder to clean the gutters. Above him, the words traumatic brain injury in four years' time. I, mean, I, I was riding the bus, so there's nothing I could do other than just watch. One day, I went to the bakery to pick up some donatas for a treat, and the man from behind me interrupted me with his order like I wasn't even there. Above him was written the words diabetes in three years' time. The staff behind the counter tried to make him see that I was next, but I just sort of shit my head and saying, it doesn't, don't worry, it doesn't matter. Then I offered to put his dozen on my bill. Had a big splash out with Vida to show that there are no hard feelings at the end. We went to the London Symphony at the Barbican. It's the building that will not die, isn't it, the Barbican? <laughs> Barbican, um, share and cockroaches till the end. Hey there, Delilah, I can promise you that by the time that we get through, the world will never, ever be the same. And you're to blame. Hey there, Delilah, you be good and don't you miss me too. Sorry, could you, just, um, can you turn that down a bit? Sorry. Thanks, I, I am getting to the point. Thank you. The auditorium started to fill up. I saw more blue than I have ever seen before. This whirl of indecipherable neon hovering above their heads and together forming a wave that would move back and forth as they stood up or shifted in their seats. It was overwhelming, but I could convince myself as the lights rolled off from where we were in the back of the auditorium all the way to the front row that they were just lights disappearing, ephemeral. If I didn't look too hard, it was all just beauty, like a ghostly glow of the ephemeral, which would shake souls in ways that uh, admittedly we might not like, but were destined to happen. When I looked at all the blues individually, that's when I drowned in them. We were at the part in Marla's second when he insisted that the doors backstage be opened and closed at a precise time in order to get the sound right. 
century and a half after his death, Mahler still demands that these doors are operated. He was that much of a control freak. <laughs> Everything went quiet. And when that happens, I have to put all my energy into limiting my movements. You know, I have to be still because everyone else is. That's when my right foot started spasming. It happens at the worst of times. Actually, see my foot? Yeah, that. The spasms made my chair squeak and it was loud. Uh, not as in the 1812 overture symbols loud, but loud enough as in distracting for some purist who wanted to appreciate the silence and just my luck. That was the man sitting in front of me who hissed, will you be quiet? And as he turned, I saw dysphagia, ataxia and partial paralysis from stroke in 10 days time. 10 days. And I thought, you know, if you, if you ever make it back here, which is a big if, I thought, next time you're here, you'll be sitting where I am. But it'll be your body, your worry, you not wanting to make a sound, you not wanting to interrupt the effect of the stagehands opening and closing the doors on cue so that the sound can be heard exactly as it was a century and a half ago. He wrapped his arm around his wife as if to say, it's just you and me at this concert. Forget about that inappropriate being behind us. She isn't civilised. She isn't part of the world that exists between ourselves and we will not look back again. On the cab, on the way back, Vida offered, sounds just as great when your speakers at home. You know, Radio 3 is so that everyone can enjoy a concert. I glared out of the window, my muscles tightening all over again. I saw the blue reflection over her head in the glass and I retorted, you know, you don't really have enough money to be wasting on cigarettes, particularly now you're out of a job. Vida got me ready for bed in silence. When one person is um, dependent on the other, there is a tension. It can only be balmed softly with a sense of ongoing sense of waiting for the abuse to come. Almost every time the waiting is abusive enough. You become aware of your heartbeat. Someone leans over you, two feet above your head to brush your teeth, wash your face just a little more roughly than usual. You watch them open pill bottles, rattle what you need out into their hands and wonder if they're going to withhold. Or maybe they're going to stuff your throat and mouth with little pellets which should never be tasted. Maybe they'll clench your jaw shut so that you either swallow the pills or they melt in your mouth in a toxic foam. Their overwhelming bitterness insists that something is wrong even though you have no say in the matter. You wait and see if the person your life depends on will simply walk away. After saying, you deserve it. I wondered if Vida would have the same thoughts. You know, would she remember what she did to me? I'm sorry, what time is it? No, I, I need to know exactly. Thank you. I bought a carton of cigarettes for her last day. Life doesn't have very many uh, news-breaking moments. Things deteriorate slowly, they don't explode. 
it takes more than an instant for something to disintegrate. Like even sometimes things like rape and murder, things that can seem to happen in an instant, they don't really. When you look back, very often there were signs. When I found the leak, it was on a stretch of the tube between Charing Cross and Embankment. For weeks, there had been these tiny gems catching the light when I flew my drone through the stretch. It was condensation, I told myself. You know, raise an alarm too early, and if you're wrong, you lose any credibility you have. But I kept an eye on where the liquid glistened from the wall, like as I ran my machines back and forth between the workmen receiving their greetings and thanks as I flew past. I would always fly back to the moisture. I needed to make sure that everything was fine, checking the structural integrity that my guys took for granted. Because they're not just workers. The seeping started and it wasn't like before. The individual gems had turned into an endless stream, steady, consistent, purposeful, uh, something I had to report. So I did. Apologetically. I mean, <laughs> I could have been wrong. What do I know about structural integrity? I've only worked on the system a few years. Like, you know, this leak could be normal. So when the office at St. James's Place said they would check it out, I mentally crossed it off my list. You know, thank God, not my problem. Someone uh, with more experience had it under control. To remind myself that this wasn't all on me, I started a game. I flew just above the workmen's heads trying to puncture the halos of light surrounding their protective hard hats. I then turned and flew backwards to see their reactions, like uh, a smile, two fingers raised playfully at me. They liked my sass. They knew it was a game. The glowing texts above their head would dissipate as I went through it, only to reform seconds later. Head office assured me that the walls were just settling. A natural movement that happens sometimes, especially on older parts of the system, cracks appeared and then would heal themselves only to appear somewhere else down the line. Just natural settling, nothing more. It wasn't until one of the workers walked by weeks later that I reconsidered. He knew I was there. He heard the spinning micro-propellers just behind him. He, he placed his hand against the tunnel's wet curve and turned to look at me, wide-eyed, shaking his head. I flashed my lights to show I'd seen him. The water reflected the glow above his head, but the diagnosis was still unreadable. The system operator at St. James's Place listened to my worries once again. If I truly thought there was a problem, I was free to file a report. Nothing stopping me except his tone. That stayed with me as I punched the keys, trying to put into words as accurately and objectively as possible what I witnessed. I, I even tried to find the name of the workman who put his hand against the wall so they would speak to him, but I was never given access to anything which would tell me who any of them were. Two days later, a notification ploughed through on the right side of my screen. Subject heading, investigation closed. I was trying to do the right thing. You know, my guys needed me to do the right thing and everyone just found it easier just to... 
two-minute recording. Uh, a two-minute recording should have been enough to show the problem. Two minutes of recording on a dongle to potentially make the operators of St. James's reconsider. The men had to duck out of my path as I took the drone back to the same spot. It was clear they knew not to get in my way. Some of them looked at each other with raised eyebrows before staring back into the open mouth of the tunnel as I disappeared beyond their reach. Sharp edge in the system operator's voice combined with his words made it clear that there was no discussion to be had. Resources had been deployed and investigation had taken place. He said, um, it's not like you can go down there and get a full picture. We can. We've looked at it and, and we know. Now I was the problem. Okay, so work was bullshit, but um, it's work. When I signed up for it, it did sound like some sort of glorified video game flying through the underground, but no one's going to shut down a whole underground line because I say I saw something from the comfort of my own home. I know that. Tonight, the plan wasn't to get shit-faced or lose control. I, I don't go out to get completely deleted. I decided to go to the oxygen bar. The underground one that opened a couple of years ago, um, before the floods and everything else, I think it used to be a wine bar, maybe. Because um, that's what you do, isn't it? You remain optimistic. You say you've got to get out there, meet new people, otherwise things will never change, particularly when you work from home, staring at screens all day. Yeah, new people. That's what I needed. Oh, 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 Delilah is pulling at a bag. Samson goes in. That's a very low growl from the old girl. And here it is, rough and tumble. Furs flying, jaws are locked, the bag is split. She warned him and she warned him this wasn't going to be anything but the end for Samson. And it looks like his end is going to be over a sausage roll. So the truth is, the pool of people that are willing to go out with, like become involved with someone with a disability is tiny. As people say to women pushing 40, um, aren't you bi? Have you ever thought of being a lesbian? Have you ever thought of being different in yet another way? But I really did like her. There's something about this woman um, leaning against the bar, ordering coloured oxygen, waiting for the beakers to take back over to her table. She was like a leaning symphony. All curves and angles placed together in ways which made sense and was utterly unique in comparison to any other person I'd ever laid eyes on. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would have found her not attractive. The curl of her hair, the curve of her spine as she laughed as if she was welcoming the world in. I mean, who wouldn't want to introduce themselves to that composition of person? Her name was Rose, and the conversation flowed back and forth between me and my chair, raised at eye level with her, leaning her head against the wood panelling above the bar. What I remember most, though, is um, the strength of her handshake. When her hands clasped around the imperfectly crinkled fingers, she stayed firm, like I was a worthy recipient of her power. You notice it when um, someone's easy to talk to, particularly when they listen. You really listen. 
and we connected. We did. A sudden stop from Delilah. She pulls away. What's she gonna... Ah, ears back. Is she bluffing? No, no, I don't think so. He hears it too. And they are off, up towards Charing Cross. Sod Pret-a-Manger. Now seems to be the time to join forces. They are gone. Um, sorry, actually, what time is it? Because I, I need to know how long this is taking. No, I can't look at the clock. Um, so can you just tell me what time is? Thank you. I offered her my details uh, to see if things could go beyond the confines of the oxygen bar to see what we might look like in daylight. Her face changed. She stepped back, moving away in the way that one does when it's clear that rejection is coming. She looked me up and down, trying to calculate the best way to break the news. And um, but it was in that moment, uh, her head away from the dark panelling, facing me straight on, that I saw the writing above her. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Self-harm. And there wasn't a date. There was minutes. I'm sorry, she said. I just don't see this happening for us. I, I know you're not really supposed to say, but... Oh God, it's got nothing to do with... Um, there's this guy back at the table that um, we're right on the edge of something. The conciliatory smile she gave me made us both uncomfortable. God, that's fucking weird for them to just run off like that. These bags are full. Well, that was fun while it lasted. Wonder if the Freegans have been out here yet. They love Hermann's a German, right? Hey, three seven six zero. When do the Freegans usually come out over? I can feel you shifting the seat. Do you know that? I don't have to look at you to know what you're thinking. I hear the oh, sucking in of air. I don't blame you. Just um, wish it were that simple. She took her neon-coloured oxygen back to her table. Every single one of her friends had diagnoses above their heads, but they were decades off. It was obvious which guy she meant. She couldn't look away from him. Soft smile around her eyes. Until someone from across the table uh, called her name to ask a question, just shifting her attention for just a moment. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out two tablets and dissolved them in her oxygen. They fizzed and mixed with the bubbles in the beaker so no one could tell she was about to become unconscious. He's got 45 perfectly able years left in him. It's like arthritis, fucker. I flagged down the bartender. I knew that everything I was saying was sort of coming out in a bit of a tumble and I expected he wasn't gonna believe me and I'd be left on my own again, but he did. And the two of us went over to the table together. Rose looked at me before the bartender spoke and then she broke him off. Um, she was like, I'm afraid she doesn't know how to take no for an answer. Give me that look again. I just don't think Mark would do a thing like that. She reached for her oxygen tube and put the end of it in her mouth, inhaling deeply from the mixture. Then she nuzzled herself 
into his arm and let out a deep sigh of someone who knew they were safe. Outside, the air hit my face as I lowered my chair back to seated level. I crossed the street into the square park and I heard a delirious giggle. I turned to see Rose being guided out, her head lolling, still able to walk with support. Mark and his mates guiding her towards Embankment Station, past the tunnel of abandoned shops and up the glass staircase where I couldn't follow. I lost sight of her. There were less than 18 minutes left on the countdown. So here I am. Oh, it's what you do to me. Oh, it's what you do to me. And there they go. Right, seriously. Being exiled, civilian street on a Thursday is shit. By the way, um, it's 3.12, right? Good. Before I got here, I saw sat on the steps of Embankment Tube, um, my guys. Five of them, all in the brightest orange that I never saw on camera. They were like five flames collected in the night, but um, only four blue halos. Then when a break, of course, it was that time of night, I pushed the joystick of my chair as far as it would go, accelerating towards them. The, the cracks in the pavement made my front casters ricochet loudly as I waved to get their attention, and, and it worked, and they looked up and they saw me. Hey, help, it's me, your, your drone pilot. Muscles tight, almost lifting me off my seat, the air scraping the inside of my lungs, desperately hoping that my voice would reach them. And, uh, and my guys looked at each other and then back at me and then they laughed. Then as they stubbed out their cigarettes, I got close enough to finally see their halos. To read how much time was left. There are two steps to get into Embankment Station. Two steps up between me and the help point. If I, if I could just get one of my guys, tell them who I am, that the games we play, it's me. I look out for you always. But I am, um, I couldn't try again. I don't have to. Heading towards me. Mates, nothing is here. Despite my amdram, the foxes are not that exciting. Most nights I lurked awake thinking of Vida, the boy, the man at the concert, my guys with the halos. I shut my eyes and I see blue. If I couldn't change what was written above their heads, then maybe I could change the world they would find themselves in once the execution began. A world where you feel absolutely abandoned, first by your body and then by the people you always assumed loved you enough to listen. A world where someone waits three hours to report a rape. 221, that's Davy's car, yeah? Oi, oi, Davy! Because when I look at you, I see your numbers right there. 
written above your heads, written above their heads. Every single one of those that just left, well, they'll know. I can confirm there's nothing happening down here. How many officers are you sending? It's just a matter of time. amazing thank you Lizzie <laughs> and thank you Athena for writing such an amazing piece um, we are going to start talking um, a little bit about you I think <laughs> um, can you can you tell us a little bit about um, <coughs> how so sorry that's <laughs> right <laughs> this is live <laughs> well I did that out <laughs> So yeah, so maybe it'd be good to know, Athena, um, with this, yeah, with with this piece, um, where the idea came from initially, and how and how it grew from that. On first July, I had to say something from that, and found Lizzie, the good voice to this piece. Um, she truly is incredible. Um, oh, thank you, Athena. <laughs> You're the incredible one. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the start of this piece, I guess, um, came from a few years ago, I would say. Just after I turned 30, 31, I became aware of how much I was being complicit in what was wrong with this world. Um, and likewise, I became aware of where people were headed in terms of the baby boomers getting older, not seeing their disabilities coming. Um, and like was. At the same time, they had a very difficult time because whenever I would confront many of my friends to tell them something was wrong, either between us or I had seen them behave inappropriately with their girlfriends or whatever, I would just get snatched and hat down, um, often very cruelly. And so it came this balance of, I know you are headed for disaster. I know we are all headed for trauma in our lives yet. Unless you go out tonight and get a hit by a bus and then you've traumatized someone else. Um, so it, it came from that and 
not the encouraging, and at the same time, I remember sitting in an African-American work class and thinking, what are the stories we don't hear? Because those are the scary ones. Those are the ones that we don't know about. They're silenced, and they never get told. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really striking. I mean, the, the image, I think, particularly of the... That you know th- these dates, these times that people not, as you say, not when they're going to die, but when they're going to kind of come into um, an experience of disability or trauma, and um, it's yeah, I think this kind, this this sense of uh, doom and powerlessness, I think, is quite palpable in the in the piece. Um, for me, one thing that's really striking in it actually is the theme of um, power that I think is you deal with really deftly, where you've got um, this kind of a superpower in effect, but also it's a, a powerless superpower because that you know no one's really paying attention to this power because no one really thinks it's true, and then also in the dynamics you've got this um, you know this this person who's worried about their carer, um, you know, and the, and that power play there where you know they have a lot of control over this person's life but then also this the protagonist is an employer so they're also they they have power as well so i just wonder how power um yeah how you feel about (laughs) how you feel about power (laughs) athena in this in this and and in all your writing (laughs) i like it when i have it (laughs) but the problem is that it's everyone else um because that's a very convoluted question. Uh, <laughs> one of a dissertation. Um, I think very often every, every single human being on the earth has power. Doesn't matter if you're the baby or the Prime Minister or whoever. Power in here is not a bad thing, but we don't look at the power we have because we assume that it is normal. And so to abuse that power in a myriad ways when used on the one that doesn't have power and you step out of line and call that power out, you're putting yourself right in a vulnerable position. You're inviting someone in to listen to you, to learn, to love, but you're taking an absolute risk that they won't completely alienate you. Um, Sophie talked about this a lot in her book, Millennial Black, and just how much marginalized voices are coded as being angry or strong or feisty. Um, and the more 
intersectionality you get, the more code words they use. Sophie, would you like to say something about that as well, the marginalized voices and, and how they are being received and yeah, labeled? Absolutely. I think um, what you're talking about is really linked to something that I try to talk about a lot, which is intersectionality, right? It's just, um, so intersectionality is a term that was coined in 1983 by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a black feminist thinker. And I think historically we have imagined that we all have sort of different intersectional identities. Like, so I have blackness, I have womanness, but I also have able-bodiedness and cisgenderness and heterosexuality. And I think historically we've imagined that maybe someone's blackness would cancel out someone's womanness or sort of vice versa. But I think what intersectionality recognizes is that those identities of marginalization don't cancel each other out. Instead, they layer on top of each other and they reinforce each other. So what we often see is people who are marginalized are not just marginalized in one area. They have overlapping identities of marginalization because we don't just interact with one element of people. But that also means that, like Athena's saying, we all have areas of power because I might have blackness and I might have womanness, but I also have those things that society tells us are good or normal. Um, not that they are normal, but they are uplifted in society. And those are heterosexuality, cisgenderness, able-bodiedness, all of, um, lots of people have whiteness, lots of people have maleness, like all of these things that society says are good or normal. And those are areas of privilege because those are areas where other people have to struggle and we don't. And I feel like those areas of lacking struggle which is much harder to see than areas where you do struggle, right? It's much harder to see like, oh, this has been fine for me. Mm -hmm. um, but those areas of privilege, I think are areas of power, which I think again are areas of responsibility. Mm -hmm. We have the responsibility when we're not being made to struggle, not being made to suffer, to bring in other people's voices, other people's messages into the spaces that that means that we can access, that they can't necessarily. So I think everyone is sort of working with that balance of, of privilege and uh, marginalization or power and lack of power always at the same time. And I think in that regard, um, the narrator, the, we just kept calling it Lizzie all week because <laughs> Lizzie weren't going to do it, um, has power and she takes that responsibility very seriously at first. Um, but to what extent, when people don't listen, are you to blame for someone to end when you saw it coming? Mm. And I think it's also, it, it, you address some really thorny areas, I think, in the text, which I really appreciate in terms of that power, but also where it kind of, touches on um you know like the the relationship she has with the woman in the bar and you're like oh is there like a is there sort of entitlement in this as well but oh no not really like there's that genuine pain here but then also in the relationship with Fido where you're saying like oh this is difficult because we've got class as an intersectionality here as well and you know there's that that power dynamic is seems really fraught but it's and it's such an intimate relationship as well so I just yeah I really loved really really loved that basically um we were going to ask as well um <laughs> about questions because you are a you know a huge advocate as well as a writer um for 
um, you know, you speak a lot about uh, disability in the arts and, and and access. And I know recently you've, uh, with the offies, you were quite, uh, you came up against an inaccessible venue, I think. Yeah. And I was just wondering whether you um, had questions that you uh, would like to be asked more as a writer and as an advocate and questions that you would like to be asked less. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm walking into a crowd um, talk about power. Um, I work really, really hard to make my work universal while at the same time I know that I am one of the writers that is contributing to a canon of work, telling new stories about disability that haven't been told yet, and that is a privilege. But equally, it's, um, I wanted to be good. And I wanted to hold up the new criticism. And so, more thematic questions rather than is this autobiographical, is this whatever news break, if you're a writer, it's all autobiographical. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't get away from you. Um, no matter how fast you run, you're still there. Um, so it's about I think more recognition, which is why I suggested something about how these themes affect us all, even if the character happens to be disabled. Mm. I mean, talking about themes of the play as well, it's really interesting how, um, I mean, <laughs> it struck us all a bit how today on on a day where it was very rainy and we came in and um i think that there was some some incident in the cab as well where the driver was saying it's coming up now from the yeah, <laughs> yeah. um it's it's an interesting thing isn't it to talk about um climate change and um sort of impending doom and and how people are reacting to that and how much um you're looking at problems head on or who does that and who doesn't and and who um, is confronting it, and then how when people speak, um, who's listening? So I think that's a that's a really interesting yeah, point I mean, in the play. Haley and I had a good old laugh when <laughs> we got a phone call that said there's two steps up to the <laughs> stage, and we were just like, <laughs> leave them. Just to leave them. Um, but of course, this week of all weeks, I can't look at this story without thinking of Sarah Everard. And that, likewise, the abuse of power that has been shown by policemen that can get away with it with marginalized voices all over the world. Not just pretty white girls in London. Um, 
I said, do I? I wanted to flood them all. <laughs> Great. And um, uh, just, I'm thinking our director as well, Anna, uh, maybe just hear from you quickly about the experience of directing this piece as well. And maybe yeah. Lizzie, if you wanted mm. to say as mm. well, yeah. because I know I'd love to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, yeah. Um, your experience of the role. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. Well, firstly, I want to say Lizzie did incredibly well being sat with the director on one side and the writer on the other <laughs> side <laughs> throughout the whole of that region. <laughs> no pressure. Um, I mean, well, it would also be really interesting to hear from Lizzie because also writes and about uh, it was a, um, one of the reasons that uh, Athena got in touch as well because um, uh, has written her own plays um, and one woman show as well about disability being one of the subject matters. But um, yeah, it was it was as we were saying it was all through Zoom, so it was the first time we all got to meet. So that's also one experience. But um, for me, reading the script for the first time and Athena and I had discussions about it, it was about yeah, how much it struck me about um, particularly, I suppose, the uh, element of, of climate change and voices not being heard and um, and being able to see the future and what, what it holds and still being kind of um, uh, overlooked or, or um, yeah, n action. I suppose that thing we've spoken a, word about, a lot about this word, listen, and that's all kind of well and good and we sort of do that a lot and read a lot, but then it's about action that takes place afterwards and it's interesting in this play that there's only one point I think where she's actually listened to and then someone takes action which is the bartender that takes her over to the woman and so it's sort of like oh we're, we're getting somewhere and maybe something will happen but there's always going to be another obstacle and, and it's that thing you're saying about being complicit or how much do we kind of continue to take action or fight um, beyond a point and also I think another big part of it I mean there was a line that really resonated today as you're saying about Sarah about there's always signs leading towards something that was just, yeah, really struck me. Um, but similarly, like with Grenfell and the whole um, story about this job and people seeing things and mentioning things, and then we only hear later dates that, yeah, I said something and it wasn't heard. And it's, yeah, incredibly powerful and resonant, unfortunately, in so many different areas. Um, and hopefully, well, hopefully won't continue to be, but that's why it felt important to... Um, to platform it but maybe Lizzie you could talk a little mm. bit about yeah performing it and your own kind yeah, of yeah absolutely I mean firstly it's just been such a huge huge genuine honor and privilege and pleasure so thank you so much Athena and, and Anna and everybody honestly it's been I felt so um yeah I felt so touched to be brought onto this project so I'm so incredibly grateful and it's such a it's such an intelligent and multi-layered script. There's, the more times I went through it, I'd find something new every single time. And I think probably like I, I could continue doing that for mm -hmm. months and still find new layers, which I think is amazing. Um, something I was just thinking about, um, just as you were speaking then, Anna, was you talking about the word listen. And I think what's really interesting about this piece is that she's so actively, constantly trying to reclaim their, the kind of the police officer's attention, her audience's attention so actively and so insistently and so consistently and I think one of the lines that that really resonates with me is actually right at the end where she says I couldn't try again I don't have to I think that's a really interesting interesting idea and a really complex one and one that's really really stuck with me among many of the other incredible themes that everyone's already touched on um just the idea of kind of considering some pop water bottles out. Um, <laughs> considering both the ideas of 
advocacy and the shared responsibility that we all have to do that and particularly in terms of intersectionality as, as you were just speaking about as well Sophie and I think that but also the idea of self-advocacy and how far how far the kind of um almost the uh I think burdens the wrong word but the a level of responsibility sits with with one to self-advocate and where does that end where's where does the point come where we go actually I have self-advocated enough in this situation and now I'm just going to let things unfold as as they as they're going to which I think Athena does so deftly I think that line for me encapsulates the point at which this character goes I have self-advocated as much as I possibly can in this situation and actually enough's enough and I'm going to have to let things come to light themselves and and albeit in a very kind of dramatic way just in order for that self-advocacy message to be heard and to be kind of um actually in, in fact appreciated so I thought that was that was something that really really stuck with me and um I think as well the idea of um coming out straight out of a pandemic we were talking about how there are some lives post-pandemic and our lives you know working from home our lives um kind of uh interacting with each other through via screens and I think I was um actually I was listening to another podcast <laughs> the other day what um it's <laughs> <laughs> not a patch on this one I swear um, um but one of the one of the speakers there was um another incredible advocate um, with a disability, and she was speaking about how, I think, um, in in the wake of the pandemic, we've all come to realise that actually, we've all sort of slightly faced up to our own mortality a little bit more and our own kind of fragility and how that's a very shared common thing and that we might all become disabled or our, our lives might change at any point and that can happen to anyone. And I thought this really, really spoke to that in such a, intelligent way um i've been talking for ages but um, it's fantastic yeah. i'm just thinking um is it a good time to have the interval yes I yes think, I mean, <laughs> couldn't we just ask yeah. i wanted to just ask sure Athena because no, we sorry. do this at the end of every yeah every interview <laughs> and every chat um athena are there any women that you admire who could be alive or dead who have influenced you in some way or um, who you think are great? Because we're, uh, because yeah, I mean, we're going how to long you got? <laughs> how long do you like it? got? Wait, got a, an mean, hour? <laughs> who needs to use the loo? Um, it's a better question. Um, immediately when you say that, um, Alice Paul was a suffragette in America who she was known as the Iron Jawed Angel um, and got arrested, thrown into prison wrongly um, and went on a hunger strike so badly that the prison guards went what what do we do? This woman cannot die on our hands. We will look terrible. We can't have a woman die in prison. Um, things obviously change and not in a good way. So that would definitely be one. Um, the Neil Hutchinson, the author, would be another one who 
attack on the media be much older to realize the amount of encoding and deciphering she was doing in her work um, in terms of telling a story that had never been told before but yet needed to be told and needed to, the words needed to be found in that regard. Um, I find I take a lot of support from women of different races. That really is largely how I learned to not self-advocate because I've been stuck with that job from day one, but just start to set boundaries and not let myself be murdered over time and again. And likewise, Lizzie and I are just trying to find the language of this experience of having bodies that aren't obedient and uh, it really helps to look at writers from other marginalized um, backgrounds for whatever reason and go that's how they did it that's what I need to do thank you so much right great Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome back from the interval. Uh, so, yeah, so we're back again with our wonderful panellists. And um, this for this half, we, we're going to ask some questions of the brilliant Sophie. Um, but before we started, I thought, Athena, maybe you could just recap, um, because it was your you suggested Sophie as a guest, so why you thought she might be a good speaker for this play. Yeah, so I encountered Sophie at Prima Donna Festival, which is a women's literary festival that I helped set up. Um few years ago, and the, seeing her on panels, um, working on my side of things of making her damn tea, I just went, yeah, she, she knows what she's talking about, which is a good thing. No, I just thought she and I are very much speaking on the same emotional labor and weight and needing emotional resilience in order to change the world. And so I just went, yeah, no, this is absolutely who I want. I don't want this to be about disability. I want it to be, be about the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for accepting. <laughs> no, we're amazed and flattered that you're here. Um, so, so your job, um, your day job, I guess, is as a global production, global manager of production at Netflix. That's mm-hmm. right, isn't it? Um, but over the past, is it year and a half? You've your your books come out, or yeah. yeah. So I guess, um, so 
the the majority of the work that I do is around race and the intersection of womanness and blackness largely with a focus on the workplace and I think I've been trying to have these conversations and do all of this stuff for years and years but after we saw you know black people being killed in the streets primarily in America last year um and that was just a microcosm of a moment that meant that yeah so my work and my books and my um you know social following and my opportunity to do sort of TED talks and and to join conversations like that that's very much been in like yeah the last year and a half two years when the wider society and wider culture has been ready to sort of have those conversations that we've been trying to have for a really long time. Mm. I'm just really curious about the, yeah, the I suppose the life of a, of a speaker kind of being invited to, to speak often, particularly about something, you know, that is a, a, a personal uh, problem and and a political problem and what that's what that's like, really, just being a, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's weird, frankly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Um, so, yeah, a big part of... So I have my day job, which is very separate, but a big part of what I do outside of that is talking to people, talking to businesses, talking to individuals, talking to universities, just talking to people about what we're seeing happening in the world and trying to have as intersectional an approach to that as I can. Um, but, yeah... I think as well as being weird, it's like you were just saying, it's emotionally draining. It's an emotionally burdensome piece of work that we do to say this is happening and you need to understand that. And I can't on my own change that. I can't on my own fix it. And that's why I have to talk to people. That's why I have to go into those spaces and say, together we can fix things, together we can change things. But so long, for so long, things have been a woman's issue or a black people's issue or you know a class issue and we've not sort of seen the ways that they've all interconnected before and I think obviously like it's so weird obviously the pandemic's been pretty bad <laughs> um, but it has meant that we have all had this shared experience that we haven't historically had and not even as a certain group or a certain race or a certain class or even a certain country we have globally been going through something very very similar very very out of our control and all at the same time and I think that has led us to sort of in some ways find areas of connection that we haven't had before because it's not just something that's happening to me it's not something that's happening to you we're all going through this strange thing and suddenly something that you can see on Instagram or something that you can see on the news happening hundreds of miles away or in another country that doesn't feel as far away as it used to because for a long time anything that was outside of our home was just other and it, that could have been next door or in another country and I think we just had this moment where the world got smaller mm. and suddenly people were engaging in these conversations in ways that we hadn't seen happening properly before. Mm, I'm so sorry that was my phone. It's <laughs> unbelievable that the host's phone goes um, but yeah no fantastic. I was just wondering as well because um, we were chatting in the break and I thought I'd raise it. So you said there was a moment in this play, um, a line that really stood out to you. Yeah, um, maybe you could absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it stood out to me. So I got the play to read in advance. So I read it today, and also listening to it here. Um, one of the lines that really affected me was something along the lines of "I'm sorry" is <laughs> not a direct quote of "And now I'm the problem." Mm. Like she's trying and she's saying and she's got evidence and she's saying and she's showing and it's her job to show this is a problem 
and people not only don't want to listen but they don't want to listen to the extent that she becomes the problem for having mentioned it at all mm-hmm. and yeah i'd love to well i think you know they read that same line in your book this afternoon really yeah <laughs> 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 it's in there it's in there and then they green black woman subject. oh yeah makes sense yeah. <laughs> but they hadn't read it before about and, that, and now I'm suing you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Um, yeah, what was your question? It wasn't a question, it was just really recognising the shared experience of that. Yeah. That we are put in positions where people say to us, tell us what's happening, tell us what's wrong, tell us what we can do, tell us what you're feeling and experiencing and going through. And then we do, and they're like, not like that. No, like, don't didn't be mean honest. that. Um, oddly enough, last week when things were kicking off about the office, um, the, 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 um, organizer of the Oswald Gender Awards, Jeffrey, said, well, tell you what, we'll have this event. Yes, it's in an inaccessible location, even though you want that new play. And it's meant to be a reception for the winners, but we'll have it. And tomorrow, you can call me and talk to me about what I need to change. And I said, uh-uh, no, and I said, yeah, and they felt it really fall off. It didn't. Because essentially, that's going for free access consultation. But also, like, it is never the, well, it should never be the victim's duty to explain what went wrong. Never, that it's been out of order. And the second you do that, you're the problem, and it's easier to get rid of you than to look at their own behavior. Mm-hmm. We see it so much, don't we? We see it in um, businesses, we see it when you know we have groups that are set up like ERGs, but we don't give them funding, we don't give them access, we don't give them power, and so we have essentially we expect either to get free labor from people, like, so we will treat you badly, and then could you come to us tomorrow and tell us what it felt like when we treated you like that? <laughs> it's like, yeah. no. <laughs> or we have people who are very like-minded put in rooms together who can say to each other, this is shit, isn't it? And then without being given the power or access or opportunity to actually do anything about that. And then if we try, if we advocate, if we say this has to change or this feels bad, we get that message that you've just mentioned of well, you're the problem, you're making a fuss, you're making other people uncomfortable, you're putting things into the light that we would rather not have to look at properly. And I think that was a theme that really sort of um, came through for me in, in the piece. I'm just wondering as well, um, because obviously I, I think now um, businesses corporations you know feel some element of pressure to look like they're doing better you know on on all fronts um and i guess 
there's there's a chance in some instances that there might be kind of cynical attempts to engage with some of these issues as well being like oh we better get a woman to come and tell us about this you know something like that and how for you um as a as an advisor i guess going into corporate settings or or possibly art settings as well are there things that um suggest to you that people are taking it seriously or red flags that suggest actually this feels like greenwashing yeah so there are lots of red flags Mm -hmm. i get asked to do a lot of things that i don't do because so i do a lot of work and consultation around race and race um equality and especially within workplaces and often i will get reached out to by big big brands who want to do this work quotes want to do this work but also don't feel like they should be paying anyone to do this work. So the expectation is that I will go in and give them an hour or two hours of my time to do work that we know is revenue driving. We know that businesses that are more diverse, especially at the most senior levels, make more money, they have higher EBITs, they are just more successful. But even though we know that that is revenue driving, the expectation is, well, of course, I'd love to volunteer my time to make whatever, like, Barclays more money. Like, mm-hmm. you've got the money, mm-hmm. give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. <laughs> um, but I also see businesses who do want to sort of put the sort of infrastructure behind it, but kind of feel that maybe a 30-minute lunch and learn is enough to solve racism in their business, is enough to sort of do that work. Like, you know, we had someone in, we even paid them and it was great and now we're fixed. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we need people to understand that the work that we're all talking about, about accessibility for all different groups of people, it's not a one and done solution. I really feel like if we could say to people, on Wednesday, if we all do this one thing, we will make an equal world. I think people would probably do it. Most people, I think, would probably do it. But when you say to people, actually, this is going to be really hard work, you're going to be really emotionally drained, you're going to be putting yourself in mental and sometimes physical, physically dangerous spaces, and the chances are you actually won't see the results of this. Mm-hmm. You are doing something with the... And it's like the climate conversation. You're doing something with the hopes that in the future we'll be able to build on this and make a change that's a much harder conversation to have with people. And I think that's in regards to like the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that we saw happening last year. We see a lot of that, we see a lot less of that happening this year because people wanted quick change. People wanted to be able to post a square or have a conversation or call out their uncle and then (laughs) fix racism. And I think when that didn't happen in the immediate terms that they wanted, they just got dis disengaged and discouraged and stopped and I think we have to sort of build in um, as a culture the understanding that systemic structural change is long and it's hard it's not like kind of hard it's it's hard work but it's work that we have to do to be able to make things better for everyone like it's it's it is better and I could talk about this all day like Mm -hmm. it's a it's a long thing we can't just say we have fixed it, we we won't fix it, but we can be part of fixing it. We can be the foundation of getting closer to mm. fixing it. Yeah, what we were thinking about as well with the context of the play and um, being listened to or not being listened to, mm-hmm. um, what um, voice, you know, the power of having your voice listened to, um, what sort of things can you 
um, talk about how can we better listen or how can people listen better than than they sometimes are so I'd love to have other people's contributions as well Mm, but my I found out about the disability manifesto later than I should have and the sort of um, line in that nothing about us without us and that to me feels like such an important part of any work to make change because I think all too often we have people who aren't part of a group coming in and saying, this is what I think these people are feeling. This is what I think they are experiencing. And here's what we're going to do to fix it without asking for those people to actually be involved. And I think our job in solving or being part of a solution to these things isn't to decide what we think people should want, isn't to write the narrative for them, but to really actively listen And then going back to that privilege conversation I had earlier, to notice the rooms that you can get into that other people can't and not rewrite their message, but just put their message into that space, use their words, use their experiences. So it's not, so we have to listen, but then we have to be willing to become the voice of those people who can't get into the either literally physically can't get into those spaces or systemically have been kept out of those spaces we have to not rewrite or talk over their message but to just amplify it into those spaces that we can get to that they can't always but i'd love to know other people's thoughts Mm -hmm. about sort of that listening and and feedback cycle i think (laughs) when you're confronted with something that has been going on that you have done. You've not handled well, let's say. Not done wrong, not, but not handled well. The level of defense just skyrockets. And it's almost like, oh my gosh, there's a building coming out of the ground that is about to swallow me. Um. And I think it's important that we start to see anger not as a bad thing. If you're not angry about something, something is seriously wrong with you. (laughs) Um, There's a lot to be angry about in this world. But genuine righteous anger that is clean and pure and fighting on the side of justice, that is a call to intimacy. That is a call for people to know me better when I do it, or for people to know Sophie better or Lizzie better. It's not that we are out to shun you. It's that we want a better relationship with you. Here's how you do it. Newsflash, you don't do it by getting defensive and yelling at us. That doesn't work. Centuries of people have tried that. Um, Yeah, so that's my top point is when you are called out, which I'm not wild about that phrase, or called in, as the um, they're putting it now, it is first and foremost a 
plead in no people better. Mm. I think there is a lot of shame and anxiety kind of built into people's responses as well that um, is obviously unhelpful but it's it's a really tricky thing I think to kind of and and not as you say not for the person doing the calling out or calling in to handle but it's there and it's explosive so I suppose this as you're talking about this regular work this regular conversation this regular consideration is necessary um on the idea of listening I was just thinking of writers and directors at the end here um that's that's our work really is 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 asking people to to would you listen to this like would you would you be interested in in listening to this so what's what's your um angle I suppose on the idea of listening and and messages within work I suppose I mean it's exactly what we're sort of doing here that it you know and, and will happen in the bar outside is that it is it's listening and then striking up conversation that it kind of then uh, action can take place like there's something um yeah like I this thing about listening and then feeling oh pity or or shame or any of those things that are just so inactive like they're not helping anyone and of course they're, they're kind of natural things to feel but they're not they're not pushing anything forward and so it's being able to recognize that recognize those internal feelings of pity or shame or whatever but actually putting them on the back and going well how must or it feeling overwhelming to hear these things oh, I'm so overwhelmed you know well what about the person experiencing those things every day and being asked every day what can I do to help like 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 it's their job to be telling us um and then uh, and just yeah analyzing those thoughts ourselves and then going well, well yeah what can I do to help if I were in those shoes and I think a lot of the time with actors as well it's like putting yourself in someone else's shoes and theater does that so effortlessly in writing you know to just put you there in the moment whether you've got your headphones on or you're in a theater and it's and it's also a shared experience that you're sitting next to someone who will have received that information in maybe a different way or heard a line that someone else hadn't heard and then have that discussion and then maybe next time when you're sat on the tube and seeing someone being treated in a certain way and you and it and it resonates from something you've heard or seen in the theater you might actually step up and say I oh, actually I can I think I'd know how I would want to be supported at that moment um uh and maybe yeah helping people just feel like like um they have an authority or they have they've experienced something that means that they they don't have to feel pity or shame because they've sort of been through something indirectly but still um yeah it's 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 still like an important you've you've been in an important place and um in a place of responsibility and you can take that out with you i mean i don't know from actually performing it's a very different yeah thing, it's um no it's a really it's a really really interesting point and um what i was, I was just thinking about as you're speaking is is you asking that question joe yeah. i think um something i found so i i did a bit of of writing um about it was kind of about my experience of disability, as Athena says, we can never out, outrun ourselves when we write things. But it it was um it was a separate character. But the the only reason I bring it up is that I found what I found really interesting is that coming away from that, a lot of people who saw it said, "I had no idea you felt that way," and I thought that was really interesting because clearly I I'd, I'd known that I felt these things and I'd known that I'd encountered these things and that I had these these thoughts, these opinions, these questions to ask, but I hadn't asked them or posed them in as clear as clearer terms as I thought I had in my my everyday life 
which is really interesting. There's something about the permission that theatre gives you or the permission that a piece of creative work gives you and the the sort of, um, yeah, in terms of the separation between you and your um, your everyday self. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I, we, all of us, any of us had been able to or had felt as though we could pose maybe some of those bolder things and they hadn't got lost in the sort of I'm I'm a really I'm really guilty of it I'm really guilty of hedging and kind of um uh justifying before I give my opinion on something which I I know I really believe and I know is really important to me but sort of almost dampening it down before I I broach it and I think it's really interesting that we're able to in in pieces of work like this in in writing and um I think it's what's so amazing about advocacy as well is that it's a really focused space to say those things which sometimes I worry get lost in in the everyday sort of oh but you know I'm fine don't worry no no it's all, no, it's all good don't, I'm, I'm, I'm actually fine how's your week been kind of that gets lost in that and I think it's so brilliant that things like theatre things like art things like work like this um gives us the focus and almost the protected privileged space to do that in sometimes mm. hope that made sense yeah <laughs> and being unapologetic i think mm. there's a word apologetically she says something about mm. putting forward like her knowledge but yeah. apologetically sort of this might be a problem and i think that theater that's unapologetic yeah. means that we can all feel kind of empowered to yeah speak mm. our minds and mm-hmm. let people know how we feel yes i think i mean we were talking about listening and getting people to listen like in the sense of going into businesses and and doing that work but then also within the arts and and theatre and how that's a slightly different quality maybe because you are given space and and a platform and you can create something that is quite pure and and it's about empathy as well isn't it theatre so it's it's a really good place mm. to start maybe to I find it a really tricky balance if I'm if I'm honest mm. with being a an artist who's you know ob- trying to be a good person as well <laughs> but like but but my you know my my goals my artistic goals are to tell um uh you know to uh, to to tell stories in a in a truthful honest way that doesn't feel time you know wanting to you know as a person wanting to be on the right side of things of course but um balancing that show don't tell thing I think in art whilst you know maintaining a social conscience I don't know if any of the writers or actors or directors kind of have any thoughts on that um I'll weigh in on that <laughs> I'll weigh in first of all but something something very very sad and that is sometimes that I feel like my audience listens to me more than the people in my life that I care about. Um, save a very few people that it seems like very often my audience knows me better and has heard what I'm trying to say better than family or close friends. When it comes to show, don't tell. Lizzie, I'm sure you run into this all the time. You're always going, when you are writing and telling stories from a demographic where stories haven't been told before, 
Oh, there's so much baggage to get across. Um, and to finally, like, refine and refine and refine until you get that moment where you are showing. But it takes 20 drafts of telling before going, this is it, and this is it, and this is it, and this is why I really don't like you, and this is it, and fuck Trump, and then you just kind of slowly go, okay, so what is the moment that embodies that? And if I can't find a moment that embodies that, how can I at least earn that moment in telling? And use it wisely so that I can say what I want as clearly as possible. Like, now I was the problem. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think as well, what you touched upon there, Athena, which is so true, is that because some of these experiences that we're talking about aren't as well known to perhaps people who exist outside of that particular group or, or people who don't identify with that particular marginalized group you have to do a certain amount of telling just to make up for the lack of knowledge mm -hmm. does that make sense like there's in terms of because I so hear you what you're saying Joe and you don't want to go out there and be didactic and be like this is you know this is I'm going to tell you something today and you're going to listen you want it to be much more organic than this specifically in the context of of sharing a piece of art but yeah it is tricky because there are those those gaps in knowledge I think and gaps in understanding to fill in to, to lay that groundwork wherein you could then start, then start doing the showing and the more kind of subtle nuanced stuff. So it, it is really difficult and it's a difficult balance to strike. And it's, I don't, mm. I don't know if that sounds, I hope that doesn't sound no, at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, in, and it's, you have, some people have the privilege of not um, having to put that in. Yeah, not, not having to explain before they tell a story, you know, or not having to. Um, make a point of that, that would make their own lives better and safer before they tell a story. Um, but not everyone is in that position. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Sophie, would you mind very much telling us which women have inspired you in your work? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the women who I'm going to talk about are um, Toni Morrison and um, Audrey Lord. So I think I, uh, so I don't know when this is going out, but we're recording this at the very beginning of October, which is the very beginning of um, UK's Black History Month. And I really appreciate, I guess it really leads into what you're saying, Lizzie. I have to do less explaining of my starting point because they have done that work for me. And I'm able to build on their amazing foundations and I'm really grateful for these women who have done this incredibly difficult work and these are dark-skinned um, black women or a queer black woman so these are women who have different intersectional identities to me and who have harder identities than I have I am a black woman but I am a very light-skinned black woman and in a society that uplifts uh, whiteness Proximity to whiteness is a privilege, and that's a privilege that I have, and that they don't have, they didn't have. And I 
don't have to justify being a queer dark-skinned black woman like all of these different intersections have made their lives harder but they have still done that work which allows us to continue building on what they made for us and gave to us um so yeah they're the people who i'd like to celebrate brilliant thank you so much um I think we are coming to the end of the first ever live Fizzy Sherbet podcast. Um, we had a couple of questions. You want another couple of questions? No, no, from, from these guys. Oh, yes. yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not used to having a live audience, yeah. of course. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if, uh, does anyone have any questions for, for anyone on the panel? Yes. Hi. Um, it was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I thought alongside all the things that have already been spoken about, there was something twinkling underneath about hope. And I wondered what gives you hope. <laughs> um, alongside also how you take care of yourself by putting yourselves out there, being advocates, how you take care of yourself. I'm just going to interrupt quickly. Do you want to just repeat the question? Yes, of course. Yes. So it's about um, hope and how you sort of take self-care as well as you go about advocating. People are looking at me so <laughs> I can <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> um, I will admit I'm a really bad person for this question. I don't often feel incredibly hopeful. I feel like we need to do something and I feel like I'm trying to do something and I feel like we have groups of people who are trying to do something. But when I see how attention and interest fanes and how sort of obviously and of course the news cycle moves on and people's interests move on I maybe can learn from some of the answers that we're going to get about hope and about self-care I'm so bad at self-care um so I know you all looked at me but my answer is it's a no and no my answer is yeah. like no sorry maybe someone else is better for this sorry um I Usually there's at least a slimmer of hope and grace in my work. It isn't quite so bleak. Um, and Haley and I were talking about it the other night, and I, went, I feel like I'm breaking a social contract because I'm usually so uplifting. Where is the hope and the grace in this piece? Um, and Haley said something really insightful, and she said, the hope and the grace is it it's set in the future, and it hasn't happened yet, and it doesn't have to happen. And I just went, yeah, <laughs> I'll say that, because <laughs> um, I... I See no other line of hope. For me, my self-care is writing. Um, if I'm not writing, something is wrong. Equally, the battles I fight pull me away from my writing. Writing is the first thing to go out the window when things get tough, um, which is why I'm so resentful that I have to waste my time uh, starting Twitter wars with <laughs> Jeffrey from the office. Um, so writing and I think talking to a few friends that 
get it and understand and will apologize for their actions, will hold me when I cry, will say, tell me more, um, rather than go, that's too hard to walk away. Yeah, absolutely. Sophia, really beautifully answered. Um, yeah, I I would say the hope. I think if the hope springs for me in 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 things like this, really, like in in conversations like this, in within the conversations and the fact the fact of their happening. Do you know what I mean? I think there's there's some there's hope in that. Also, I have to say, I find the kind of um, the new the new generation gen z really hopeful as well i think i'm i'm not much older than them but i i think they're incredible and really special and really exciting and i think they've got some really brilliant things to say and um they just seem to sort of see the world through um a really exciting lens so yeah i think think that would be for me on on hope you also during the break were talking about fatigue mm, um, yes. and yeah, yeah. Our, our denial of fatigue. And definitely one thing that has helped me for self-care is when I can, tonight being the exception, I just die on the weekends. <laughs> I don't get dressed, I don't, I just... Stay on the couch and watch TV and mm. die and <laughs> it's, it's like a zombie. Um, I don't look at the email, I don't write, I don't do anything. Mm. But then at least by Monday I'm rested and I can last another five days. And it is five days. Monday I get a lot done, Tuesday I get a lot that Wednesday was starting to go downhill, and by Friday I'm dead. <laughs> That's my week. Definitely, and I just sort of um, so really briefly say on that as well, um, owning the rest because that's yeah. something I, I'm very bad at actually, and because I think we do live in a world now where we we absolutely champion productivity sometimes to the point of it actually being a little bit unhealthy, and. I think because of that, I I felt kind of like probably quite a lot of shame around resting, well, and I'm only sort of starting to realise that now in the last sort of year or so. Sophie probably knows more about this than I do, but lack of sleep and lack of rest was a way to control people, and that historically robbing people of sleep was a way to keep them from running away, from rebellion, from thinking for themselves. And I think that lack of sleep is a form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Especially when you're kind of, um, you, you're working from a point of, of slight deficit maybe and but that's not always visible to the outside world as well so you feel like you always have to kind of like mask or hide that deficit from from sight so that yeah to sort of um i don't know protect it protect other people from it as well 
anyway mm, sorry yeah, yeah no this that. is great this is really great i mean what a podcast on the lack of sleep <laughs> and hope we have yeah. the hope that, that yeah dramaturgically <laughs> i think we'll we'll end it on hope and sleeping but thank you so much it's to all been our speakers amazing. Thank and you. Uh, to our wonderful audience as well thank and you and can i just say um mm. that we have these lovely badges oh, on yeah. because we are fizzies <laughs> and we are um fizzy sherbet and if you want to be a fizzy too you can get your own badge which is at the box office yeah <laughs> we've got merch buy, so buy, some, buy some merch um but yeah thank you everyone and uh good and, night and oh, do oh, no. stay around as and, well. and hang around to chat yeah yeah, yeah. great now we just completely lose the power of speech <laughs> yeah. but that's okay okay well thank you for having us it's been great The Diagnosis was written by Athena Stevens, directed by Anna Gervin, and performed by Lizzie Annis and Cara Ballingall. Sound design was by Keegan J. Curran. Our special guest was Sophie Williams, and our episode hosts were Josephine Start and Tamara von Vertan. The episode editor was Lily McLeish. Fizzy Sherbet is produced by Steph Weller for Playwell Productions and Amina Hamid Productions. This episode was recorded live at the Bush Theatre in London and was only possible thanks to the kind support of the National Lottery through Arts Council England, Sainsbury Foundation and the Bush Theatre. Thanks also to our anonymous supporters. You know who you are. You can find out more about Fizzy Sherbet on fizzysherbetplays.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, subscribe and review.